Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Kyle and I take a look at some of the key stories in Compliance Week from September, including the GOL and Oracle enforcement actions, the Monaco memo, and end-of-the-year SEC filings. We take a look at stories that Compliance Week is compiling and will print and post in October. And then we consider upcoming Compliance Week conferences in Europe and around third parties. I know you'll enjoy this episode. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. A look at stories for the upcoming month, talks and sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. Once again, thrilled to join Tom to talk about some of the top stories Compliance Week is following, feature some of our writers' most recent work, and Tom said, we'll talk some sports. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look back at some of the top stories from Compliance Week in September, and we're going to be previewing some of the top stories that Compliance Week will have coming in So Kyle, I think we ended last month's podcast with you talking about how busy you anticipated September being. I first want to ask you, did you anticipate being this busy? Yeah, I think I, I, this isn't my my first rodeo with September. Like we were talking about last time, the end of the government fiscal uh, can always be a frenzy. These regulators are trying to get these enforcement actions in, just like any company's trying to get that data in by the, the end of their fiscal year. We saw a lot there at the finish line, a couple of big FCPA cases against Goal and Oracle, $1.8 in fines across uh, 11 major banks. And then a follow-up a couple of days later, Barclays hit with another $300 million in fines. Just a, a lot of real seismic enforcement actions with a lot of key compliance takeaways. For us, it's always a busy time. And one of those, it always seems the stories come at 4.30 when we're about to clock out for the day. So it keeps us on our toes, that's for sure. Yeah. And you talk about enforcement actions. You didn't even mention the Monaco memo and the Monaco doctrine and the speeches after the announcement of the Monaco doctrine as embodied in the Monaco memo. So maybe could I start with that? Because for compliance professionals, that may have been the most significant, even beyond the enforcement actions, which we'll certainly get to. But I know you guys looked at it, you shook it, you baked it, you fried it, you poked it. Maybe what are some of your thoughts really from a 30,000 foot view of looking at the process the DOJ went through, how the information was released, both in a live speech that was made available contemporaneously for many of us. And then of course, the release of the doc, the memo, which the doctrine was based on. How did you guys take a look at that? Yeah, Tom, go figure in a month that uh, is a swarm of enforcement actions. The biggest story for compliance is about future enforcement and not actually being an enforcement action itself. I think for us, we the writing's been on the wall with this for a, a, quite some time. Lisa Monaco had started to say last year that they were going to be taking a closer look at white-collar crime enforcement and also imposition of monitors. All these sort of things have been talked about for a while. Um, and then we started to see some of the double down on this earlier this year uh, with some of the speeches from 
both Lisa Monaco, uh, Kenneth Pleat, head of the criminal division, with some of the rhetoric about the importance of compliance and putting a lot on compliance's shoulders. I think it's very clear that Kenneth Pleat thinks very highly of compliance officers. He was a former compliance officer himself. So I see this as one of those situations where he is calling compliance to the table. And for many, this is what they've wanted. They've wanted the actual uh, ability to sway their business based on their their message. But for many, there also is, are the liability concerns that are associated with this. And that's something the DOJ hasn't fully addressed just yet. But in, in terms of the Monaco memo and, this, and all the speeches that came out in some of these focus areas, I don't, again, I don't think too much of it is necessarily out of the blue, nothing that we really didn't expect here. But that said, it has significant ramifications. I, I think a lot of people are going to be paying attention to, of course, the issues around clawbacks and compensation returns. Those will always catch an individual's eye because it affects an individual, but a lot of it's going to be focused on admissions and these impositions of monitors. I, I think some of this stuff is really frightening from, I guess, a, a corporate defense point of view and having these stricter penalties to be faced. So Kyle, one of the things, you mentioned several of the different components of the Monaco memo. And one of the things that I always turn to compliance week for, in addition to compliance week's analysis, you also talk to some of the top practitioners in the field on various issues. And you certainly did around the Monaco memo. And I guess I was struck by the how some of the top white collar practitioners saw the memo as either changing or in many cases, perhaps not changing a company's decision to self-disclose or self-report and what it might mean for the importance, as as you would think of internal investigations could not be any more important, perhaps they're even more important now. Was there anything you saw in the Compliance Week reporting from some of the folks that uh, you all interviewed that that struck you? Or maybe one of your predecessors told me, Tom, if nothing strikes me, that's a story too. <laughs> that is indeed true. For us right now, we have our, we every year we, we do a survey inside the mind of the chief compliance officer where we're pulling all compliance officers on their reactions to some of the top compliance stories from that year. And it just so happens we launched our survey this year, the week after the Monaco memo released. So we do have questions in that survey asking respondents, which of the areas of the memo, because they were broken into certain areas, are are the most catching the interest of your business. And we're starting to pour through those results. We'll have the survey open a few more weeks and really dive into it in our winter print magazine. But yeah, the matter of self-disclosure, and we've seen this for a long time with regulators is they are always pushing self-disclosure and they will make it very apparent the benefit of self-disclosure. They'll make sure they go out of their way to say this fine was reduced this amount because it was self-disclosed. And yet, despite that, and that's been precedent that's been set for years now, it still seems many businesses try to get away with not disclosing it and just try and see if they can skirt through it. And the penalties are always steep in those cases. And there's examples always made about that. I think any extra pressure there is, I think, a recognition of the fact that these government agencies aren't satisfied with the amount of businesses that are self-disclosing. I have to imagine no matter what, you might be able to encourage more, but you're still going to have those holdouts and those businesses that try to sweep things under the rug and just hide it. But 
if the penalties get steeper for that, and if they're continuing to make examples of those businesses in a negative publicity light, that's when I think you're going to start to have more people get the message. It's been a long time. It's not anything new, but it's really just a matter of it clicking within some of the minds of these executives who sometimes tend to be a little more confident in themselves than they should be. Kyle, you wrote a really interesting, I'm going to call it editorial, but it's entitled opinion piece for this week's magazine entitled Regulation by Enforcement Does Nobody Any Favors. And the piece speaks about the SEC and the perhaps change of focusing investigations and enforcement actions on CCOs. But I actually, I rereading it in preparation for this podcast, I find it incredibly prescient anticipating some of the issues from the Monaco memo and the Monaco doctrine, certainly around CCO certification. And we seem, or the DOJ and the SEC seem to be, I don't want to use the word targeting, but moving uncomfortably close to scenarios that we have not seen around CCO liability before. I know you didn't write your opinion piece in anticipation of the Monica memo, but could that Monica memo and the CCO certification issue that Kenneth Polite spoke about at Compliance Week 2022 be a continuation of that theme? hundred percent. I think when I wrote that piece, we were looking at, it, it was recently off when the SEC disciplined a chief compliance officer this summer and Hester Peirce took the time to apply the New York City Bar Association's liability framework against the case to give, if we were to have a liability framework, this is how we would have assessed this case. And this is why we reached these conclusions against this chief compliance officer. So that was the crux of what we were focusing on. But I think uh, there's been a, a bit of an increased focus on chief compliance officer liability at the SEC. And, and they're really looking toward gatekeepers to step up and do their jobs to keep these companies out of trouble. And I think that's the same exact path the Department of Justice is taking here. Like I mentioned previously, Kenneth Bleet is high on chief compliance officers. When he was speaking at our conference earlier this year, he talked about all the roles he's held in his career and how he believes that his time as a chief compliance officer at Entergy was the most challenging role that he held. And he knows how much is on these individuals' shoulders. He knows how much of an impact they can have at an organization. And he is really, he really enjoys the idea of putting some pressure on these individuals to step up to the, um, and I think that's the direction that the Department of Justice is going in with these is to say, all right, compliance officers, you have a lot to do. You can make a big impact, but we're going to put your feet to the fire a little bit. It's a bit of an unnerving way to go about it. We have, I do believe, two cases out there where the CCO is now going to have to certify at the end of the non-deferred prosecution agreements that the compliance programs are in shape. I do believe Glencore and Goal are the two cases. And when that time comes, what's going to happen if the program's not ready? And what's that chief compliance officer going to feel? And what if that chief compliance officer leaves within the time of this DPA? What repercussions are there then? There's a lot of this that we're going to have to see, but for sure, these regulators are putting pressure on the compliance profession, unlike we probably have seen in a long time. And I think it's a bit of a sign of respect for the profession, but it's never ideal when the stakes are so high. And that's the case in some of these. You also mentioned several enforcement actions that occurred in September that Compliance Week wrote about. Right at the end of the month, we had Oracle, which was an SEC matter. Earlier, we had Goal, which was a FCPA criminal matter. We also had, as you mentioned, Banks Behaving Badly, Episode 398. Really, anything about those 
You mentioned gold and the monitor going forward. Anything else that struck you or your team about those enforcement actions that you guys supported about? Yeah, it's always a bit of a haze when you have so much going on at once. With the Oracle case, what really jumped out is there is a there was a repeat offender element there. They were fined by the SEC for violations of the FCPA at the same exact affiliate for very similar issues uh, in 2012. There's no surprise that penalty, I think, was $2 million. This one was in the $20 million range. But that's the type of stuff you're going to get when there is a recidivist element to it. But one, one that really caught my eye right at the very end of the month. And the reason it caught my eye is not so much for the enforcement act itself, but for a statement that accompanied it was the CFTC find an affiliate of Cantor Fitzgerald at the end of the month for commodity trading violations. And one of the commissioners of the CFTC concurred with the with the enforcement action, but did not fully support it because she felt the fines were too lenient. It was about $1.9 million fine, but she thought there needs to be a steeper fine and she thought that there needs to be admissions. of, And this is something that we're starting to see the SEC push on more, something we're starting to see the DOJ push on more. And now you have the CFTC following suit as well with one of the new commissioners there wanting to push the regulator to have more strict penalties and have more of these businesses admit their guilt as opposed to getting off without admitting or denying. Those type of things are, are the type of stuff that has ramifications well beyond that one month. So I think... Any of those type of enforcement actions that really set a precedent or that will be something we'll look back on two or three months down the road, those are the ones that always jump out for us because it's a story that continues to need to be told. And like you said, when you got the big banks behaving badly, it can be $1.8 in penalties, but at the end of the day, it's just ho-hum, just another day for the big banks. The, uh, maybe if I could now turn to what may be coming up in October. You already mentioned the inside the mind of the CCO. And what we've seen in the past is you may not have completed your full analysis into the surveys, give us a full report, but sometimes you tease out some of the key things that come in. So I first wanted to ask you, will we get a few teasers? And then what else do you have uh, on the pipeline for uh, October from Compliance Week? Yeah, we'll certainly be teasing out some of the data from the survey. We launched the survey in the last week of September. We usually typically close it in mid-October, and then we'll have a full report produced off the results by the end of November, typically. Again, it's a real big anchor for our winter print magazine, which ships to our members in early December. So we'll be looking to turn all that around by the end of next month. This year's survey, we focused on three specific sections. One of the sections is on liability concerns. Again, we talk about the Monaco memo. We talk about some of what's going on at the SEC, whether the SEC should put forward a CCO liability framework and why. We also ask questions about concerns regarding the potential for a recession, both in the United States and globally, and businesses are preparing for that. And we ask questions on the SEC's climate-related disclosure rule. And what are some of the pain points that businesses are facing now about seven months out with the expectation that the SEC is going to look to make that final rule by the end of this year. And then we'll see what the challenges in court pretend. But uh, that's going to be a big one for us coming in the home stretch of 2022. Also this month, we are putting our ESG conference from September that was in late September in the rear view and looking toward our European conference. So that one's going to be back in person in Scotland in, in, later this month. And some of the exciting sessions we'll have there include an interview with 1MDB whistleblower who actually spent time in prison for his role in exposing what happened there. I'd say right now we're shaking off the shell shock of a crazy September, but looking to really follow up and plug in on some of these stories and be able to say, all right, we know what happened here, but what's the fallout? What does this really mean? And that's what we typically do every October. It's always a busy month for us to collect ourselves after the end of the September push and really take stock of what some of these enforcement actions could mean for 
compliance officers looking to avoid being in the same I wanted to ask you specifically, were there any highlights from the ESG conference for you or the team or things you might want to tease out to the audience of this podcast? Yeah, one of the the more eye-catching sessions was really great from the jump of the conference. We had the opening keynote from the head of ESG at Rite Aid, uh, and she was very transparent and open about what the business has been doing as it confronts the SEC's climate-related disclosure rule. And I think it's always really interesting, and that's my favorite part of our conferences, is when we can just have a practitioner just talking about what they're doing at their business to keep up with these things that every business is facing. So to be able to have her just be open, answering questions from the audience, being just fully on the table about here's some of the things that we've struggled with, here's some of the things we're working on now, but then also just giving advice too and saying, hey, don't be intimidated by what you're seeing other businesses doing. But it's just because this company has put out its ESG report for the 10th year doesn't mean they have it. You have to do it. If these are all individual journeys and you're going to find out what works best for you along the way, that type of session really, I think, just grabs your eye and really ends up being what makes the conference a, a a worthy experience to attend. Again, being able to just hear from someone else that's doing your job, what they're doing. For me, that really jumped out. We also wrote a couple of stories just about some of the basics on getting fun started with your ESG journey. For a lot of companies, they're in that situation right now. They're feeling out what this might look like for the first time. So it helps to have any guidance to be able to pin some of this stuff too. And so that was a real focus, I think, of the conference is to say, hey, there's a lot that's uncertain in this area, especially regarding the SEC's climate-related disclosure rule. But what we do know now is that we know enough that you should be getting started. You should be starting to prepare. Um, even if it's just identifying who's going to do what when the time comes, it's better than standing. Anything else uh, you might want to tease us out uh, really through the end of the year, or do you want to turn over to some sports? Yeah, like I said, we will have our winter print magazine, which will be addressing our Inside the Mind of the CCO. serve. Another thing we do is we're always doing year in review from uh, the SEC DOJ perspective looking at some of these large fines, really breaking it down. And every year we have a couple of pieces where we'll do the top ethics and compliance failures of the year and also some of the compliance triumphs from the previous year. So those are always big pieces for us. It's a good opportunity to be able to sum up some of the big storylines from the year. So we're looking forward to being able to put that together like we always do every year and really wrap up what's been a very eventful 2022. I think we could all agree. And from the, let me just comment from the reader's perspective, they're always a lot of fun. They're not written tongue-in-cheek, but they're written in a way that I find incredibly entertaining. I'm greatly looking forward to that. With that, maybe we can move over to saving the world because it does need some being saved and particularly needs being saved in sports right now. The top sports story for me right now is Tua Tungavaloa <laughs> and the NFL concussion protocol. For those who may not know, he played a game on Sunday where it was clear to me he was concussed. In the first half, he was put back in. In the second half, he complete, finished the game. And he turned around and played on Thursday night, took a relatively routine hit that was not dirty or mean hit at all, fell across the body of a defensive player in his head, whacked it, and his body convulsed. And it was just horrific to see his fingers bent in ways that I didn't think were possible. And he was put on a board had his head secured and taken off the field. What I guess I wanted to start with, Kyle, is how would you have reported this story and would your reporting have changed from after the first incident to the second? Or how would you even think through this story? 
Yeah, Tom, I spent a while at ESPN in, in a beat writer role, and it's hindsight's always twenty twenty in those kind of roles. There's a lot of it that you have to take at face value. When you're talking to a coach, you're talking to a trainer or whatever it may be, you know that they have certain protocols they have to follow. So when the coach of Miami Dolphins in, the, in this case is what they said was, it wasn't a head injury, it was a back injury, and we were allowed to put him back in, and that they had to, the player had to clear certain protocols, then it's easy to just say, okay, that's, that makes sense. Then now I understand why he went back in. He must have cleared the protocols. And now, as we found out in the time since, is the person who conducted those tests, the independent practitioner, has been fired. And clearly something went amiss here. Overall, we know more now, and it opens all those questions up to say what happened. But in the moment, it's easy to just get caught up and take things at face value. So I think, and even to bring it back to compliance a little bit, this is it's just as true in journalism. It's always trust but verify. You're going to hear from someone and you're going to be able, you're going to have to take some of it and at stock, but there's also ways to go back. The first play where Tua got hurt and he hit the ground and was really woozy walking off the field. They said that was because he injured his back. For me, I would have been skeptical about that. I've, and you're talking to someone who has scoliosis. So I've had a lot of back injuries. It's never impacted me that way. And maybe you start to follow up with some individuals to say, look at this. What do you see here? Do you see this as an effect of a back injury or do you see this as an effect of a head injury? And you really start to be able to put that story together and maybe get some experts to say, no, that's not a back injury and start to raise those. Because it's very apparent now that he sustained a head injury in that game. The end result, he leads a comeback victory. It's all joyous and whatnot, but... Clearly, there was something wrong on Thursday. And it, like you said, it's a horrifying sight. You never want to see anything like that. And now it's all questions and all fallout. But at the end of the day, it's, it's all too little too late. The league has failed this player who's now in the concussion protocol, sidelined for who knows how long. So, you know, we can put it together now, but it's too late to undo what's already been done. I think in, in these sort of situations, again, you there is an understanding of okay, there's protocols that need to be cleared. And maybe if the coach is saying this, then it's got to be true. But you have to be vigilant and look at it from different angles and really look at it for yourself and say, I, don't, I think something's amiss here. Let me talk to someone else about this. The other thing or the way I've been thinking about it is the other thing that football has for most American males, we have played football, whether it was organized in junior high school or whether it was just Howling around with our pals, our buddies on the playground. Everybody's thrown a ball. Everybody's caught a ball. Most of them got hit. Some of us hit people. So we have some experience in football. We also, for better or worse, have some experience with injuries. You mentioned your back. I have a double herniated back. I've had several concussions from football and from riding bicycle. And so we have a personal experience. And the thing about pro football, it is played literally before our eyes. On a national, obviously on a national stage, but before our eyes, we both saw two in both of those situations. And the, I thought back to when there, there was a debate about the rules of whether a catch was a catch. If 50 guys in a bar see it and say it's a catch, yeah, it's a catch. Well, if you and I see someone stand up and stagger in a way, both of us having had back injuries and understanding what back pain is and what it can do to you when you twist the wrong way, we both know you don't stagger like that. You may stagger, you may go down. You don't even get up. 
And yeah, but you may bend over and just try to catch your breath, but you don't do that. And so the, how I've been thinking about it, the great quote from Howard Cosell of, if you see it, you got to say it. And I've been thinking about that in the context of compliance. Yes, we have, a, and frankly, the Oracle enforcement action, because they had a protocol in place, but something wasn't right. And when you're spending, and part of what Oracle was doing was overpaying for non-existent, overpaying for advertising for, or paying for non-existent advertising for distributors to create a pot of money to pay bribes, to create a slush fund to pay bribes. And if something doesn't smell right, or in the case of football, it doesn't pass the eye test, you need to ask more questions. You, you don't need to take, oh, they followed our protocol on face value because it clearly failed Tua and it failed Oracle. And it made me realize that you've got to use all of your senses. Yes, I have a written program and I can even tie it into CCO certification because I've been thinking about that too. How do we assure the protocols we put in place, the written program really is working and you have to have a, 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 another set of eyes on it somehow. You and I, as I said, you and I saw to it, we knew something was, it was clear when you stumble like that, it's because you're foggy upstairs. And even if you pass the written protocols in place. So I guess I would ask compliance professionals to, to think about maybe your program in the context of, do you just tick the boxes or do you really put a second set of eyes on it and use your common sense. That was just a horrible example for all of us to have to watch and for Tua to have to go through, hope his career's not permanently damaged, but you're absolutely right. The written protocols failed this player. Yes. And so go ahead. Yeah. Now I, I think, again, you can't understate that, that the value of that verification. I, I remember an example shared by someone speaking at our third party risk conference earlier this year was if I ask my daughter, if she brushed her teeth before she goes to bed and she says, yes, maybe it's not the worst thing to just check and see if the toothbrush is a little damp. There's always, a, you always, it never hurts to do that follow-up and really start to look into it. And so it's, it's uh, like you said, it's, it really could have paid off in this situation to prevent what was a real horrific sight in that Thursday night game. Okay. Well, you've given me the ideas for a few blogs. I'm raring to go. Okay. Now we're going to turn to, I know you're a pretty big Red Sox fan, so I hope this doesn't hurt too much, oh. but... I have absolutely loved Aaron Judge this year, and I'm just going to read off statistics from September 21. Home runs, 60, number one. RBIs, 128, number one. Average, 316, number one. Run scored, 123, number one. Bases on balls, 93, number one. Total bases, 372, number one. On-base percentage, 419, number one. Slugging percentage, 703, number one. OPS 1.123, number one, and wins above replacement 9.7, number one. Aaron Judge has and had a season for the ages. And we have talked about greatness in sports on this podcast, and I know you have seen greatness, team, certainly team greatness, and we've talked about sustained greatness leading to Hall of Fame careers. But I wanted to ask you to reflect upon greatness for one season. And how you think about something like this, is this really to be cherished for our baseball lifetimes and is Aaron Judge to be celebrated or just how do you think about this kind of greatness for one season? Yeah, I think when you're analyzing uh, this type of performance, 
it's really easy to get caught up in all those numbers, like you mentioned. And we compliance people, we are used to alphabet soup, but man, baseball, they really serve it up with some of those statistics. And it's, it's easy to focus on everything that judge is doing. But what I've always looked at when I'm looking at individual season greatness is I'm not looking so much at that player who I think is having that individual great season. I'm looking at how the rest of the league compare, perform compared to that player. And I think that's the real gripping thing with what Aaron Judge is doing right now is not only is he leading all these characters categories, but he's blowing away the competition in some of these. I think that the next closest person to him in home runs is 17 home runs behind him. And I think that's when you really start to understand just how significant someone's performance really is, is when you look at the rest of the league or you look at everything else around it. And they're not even in the same conversation remotely. It's easy to write it off and to say, oh, no big deal. Just another big home run year or anything like that. But nobody else is hitting the ball like he has been doing this year. So even if I'm a, a bit of a Red Sox fan, I'm more of a baseball fan. And these type of stories are just incredible for the sport. I think this is the, the type of thing that really draws baseball fans in is these sort of romanticized stories. And I think when we look back on the history of this sport and some of the other home run chases we've seen, again, now we have the benefit of hindsight. As exciting as the summer of 98 was in the moment when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were going home run for home run, swinging for the title, it raises alarms now that there were two of them doing it. There were two of them doing what nobody in the hundreds of years of baseball had never done before at the same exact time. And we know now it's because they were allegedly taking performance enhancing substances. When Judge is doing this, no one else is doing it. It really, you can start to appreciate it for the individual performance and really just to say, wow, this is something that nobody else is even remotely close to. And we're going to end with uh, another melan or a melancholy story that's really tied to compliance and a team near and dear to your heart, unfortunately. And that's the scandal of uh, not so much the Boston Celtics, but they're now suspended coach Emi Yudoka, who is alleged to have engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a subordinate. There was an extensive internal investigation, and the Celtics took disciplinary action in the form of a one-year suspension of the coach. We don't know a lot more than what I've just related. There's been incredible speculation as to the contours of the affair, of the Boston Celtic personnel involved in it, who knew what, et cetera. We don't know any of that. But I guess perhaps the most prescient commentary I heard on this from all people who I did not expect it from was Bill Simmons. And Bill Simmons talked about it in the context of the power dynamic when you do have this type of inappropriate consensual relationship at the office, not so much what it does to the two people involved, but what it does to the entire office mm -hmm. and how it sets a tone that today it, is viewed as not simply negative, but incredibly toxic. So I wondered maybe, first of all, to get your thoughts as a fan, but I see damage to the entire Celtic organization that is going to take some time to repair, coming off one of the greatest seasons that they didn't win a championship, that they went to the finals with the team they had and were then a game couple of games of winning it. Now they've got a new coach, comes in right before the preseason starts, never been a head coach. And why these types of relationships are now seen as absolutely anantha to a good governance run corporation. 
Yeah, the fan perspective is it's just shocking when these things happen, especially so close to the season beginning. In in Boston, I think so many of us are just used to Bill Belichick locked down. You're not hearing anything coming out. So for this to happen to the Celtics, who are also a pretty tight-lipped organization, you don't hear too much from the sort of internals of what's going on at the Celtics. So for this to come out and to come out before the Celtics had made an announcement on their own, the story really just took a life. And I think that's where the sort of most disappointing element of this came is you have today's environment where people are able to speculate and to able are able to launch into their own inquiries and whatnot that, like you had mentioned, it just took up the entire organization. And we had... A story about two individuals that now started to incriminate everyone around them very unfairly. A lot of people accusing different Celtic staffers of being the person involved. It's just so disappointing to see when that happens. But that's where the toxicity comes in, like you had mentioned, is these type of things. It's not two people. It ends up taking over the entire organization. There are now severe questions of trust within this organization. Who was the person that leaked this story out there? Who was involved in this? Who knew? that this was going on. And we still don't know a lot of the players involved. And I hope we never figure them out because it's not fair to those people to have their lives upended by this just because one high publicity individual is involved. But that's the way these things tend to go. And it happens at individual companies all the time. It is if one prominent individual gets caught up in something, it's always easy to start to put pieces together that might not be there. And then you have a narrative that's spun out. of. And as we know now, the court of public opinion is just as important as any sort of criminal court. There's always a lot that can go wrong in, in that area that can really damage a brand and damage a business. I think the Celtics brand is, is damaged right now. It's damaged not only for its fans, it's damaged for its own staff, and it's damaged for its players who also, for all intents and purposes, seem to have not really known what's going on here. So there's a lot of shock there as well. And I think when we saw the team announce it, and we saw the president of basketball operations, Brad Stevens, get emotional talking about the effect that this has had on this staff. I think that's really apparent where you can see that this is a real concern for this organization, and he knows it. And I think even if it affects their play on the court, at the end of the day, they have some real big problems behind the doors that they need to. Kyle, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. It's been a great episode. Lots, obviously, to talk about from September. I think the inside the mind of the CCO is has come to become one of the things that most compliance professionals look forward because of the insights that are brought by their peers as reported by Compliance Week. So I know we're all looking forward to that. We've got a great October coming sports-wise. Hopefully I'll be able to talk a whole lot more about the Astros as as we move forward. But uh, some really important stories and lots of lessons, I think, for the compliance professional from our sports stories from uh, this month. So I greatly look forward to seeing what our next episode brings us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm looking forward to sharing more when we meet again next month. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I hope that you will check out the new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. It's an exploration of some of the top anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years or so. Together with Mark DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a deep dive into some of the top FCPA and other anti-corruption cases that have uh, percolated since 2008 or so. I know you'll enjoy it. It's a great wrap-up. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.